The Candid Frame is supported by donations by listeners just like you. Help us to bring you great conversations with great photographers. Support the show today with your monthly contribution through our Patreon effort at patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame or click on the link in the show notes or the website at thecandidframe.com. Thank you. This is Ibarian X, and this is The Candid Frame. Though we take most of today's technologies for granted, it wasn't too long ago that smartphones, personal computers, and digital photography were the stuff of science fiction. But when those things did arrive, they eventually changed the world in ways that their inventors could never have imagined. But all of these things began with an idea and the determination of a small community of people in what is now known as Silicon Valley. Now, many of these people are giants of business and industry today, but back then, many of them were young men and women whose dreams began in their parents' garage. Doug Minway got a first-hand look at that world that gave us the likes of Steve Jobs, John Noel, Bill Gates, and many others. His work, Fearless Genius, is a visual time capsule, not only of an industry, but the beginning of a cultural revolution that is still changing and shaping our world today. Well, welcome to The Candid Frame. It's really an honor and a pleasure to, to have a chance to talk with you. As I, as I told you, I've been a longtime fan of your work, and it's. I look forward to, to talking about it in depth with you. Before we get into talking to you, talking to you about you know the, the major the, the major body of your work. I wanted to talk to you about the time before Fearless Genius. I know that you had you know been working as a photojournalist, and I think one of the from what I've read, one of the more pivotal times for you is when you had gone and documented the famine in Ethiopia. And it seemed like that that time and that work really sort of made uh, not only an impression on you, but helped to shape your search for something substantive that you wanted to focus on. And I was hoping if you could tell us a little bit about where your headspace was at around that time. Yeah, well, and first of all, thank you for your kind words and for having me on your show. I'm delighted to be here. And yes, that was a pivotal moment for me. I started covering news while I was in school, got a scanner in the dark room, and you know, I'd seen quite a bit of uh, troubling, disturbing things before I got to the famine in Ethiopia. I was covering, you know, the drug wars and all kinds of issues like the homeless crisis and the AIDS crisis, and just was totally stunned to see the scale of human suffering in this famine uh, and conflict in Eritrea and Ethiopia. And I actually pitched that story to Newsweek. They were not covering it. There was only one story had come out on NBC and uh, had quite an impact, but no one was going in. You had to, we had to drive a thousand miles across the Sahara to get there, <laughs> to get in there. So it was quite a hard story to cover. And when I got there, by the way, I kept arriving at these refugee camps and the doctors would say, oh, there's another photographer here. You just missed him. And everywhere I'd go, it was this photographer. It turns out it was Sebastian Sangato. Oh, wow. <laughs> Before I met him. So that he was shooting the famous work ahead of my <laughs> my trek through that same area. So it was quite interesting. 
I felt very troubled because it didn't seem like I could really find a practical way to contribute. I mean, you know, my peers as photojournalists, we always want to make pictures that can have an impact and maybe improve lives or bring attention to injustice or change things. One of the gratifying things about Fearless Genius was realizing that I hadn't changed anything with my photographs to date, but the people who were actually changing the world were right there in front of me. They, you could see they were doing it, so all I had to do was create a record of them. So that became a very satisfying purpose about Fearless Genius, whether it was a good story or whether the pictures were useful or not, just creating a record was useful, I felt. That idea that these people sort of changing the world, when, when did you get that? Because it's like, oh, yeah, there's some people in California that are doing some interesting stuff. But when was the when was the moment where you not only realized that, wow, these people are doing something that could really be transformative, and also the fact that this is a story I want to tell? I think it was when Steve was fired from Apple. You know, he announced he was going to build a supercomputer that would transform education. And, you know, anyone who's worked as a journalist knows education is one of the keys to almost every social issue. He'd already changed the world uh, once with the Apple II, and that really did change the world. It launched the PC revolution, and it, it, it began to change, you know, whole industries. The Mac had come out, but it was failing at that time, which was part of the reason he was forced out at Apple. Mm -hmm. uh, so we didn't know that was going to change things, but and it did with the graphic, you know, the whole graphics publishing, desktop publishing revolution. So... I just thought if this guy's going to put his attention on education, that's interesting. And that's a reason to pay attention to technology. And once I got inside the bubble, the PR bubble, which was very considerable, even in those days, they had the best PR in the world, even in the 80s. But once I got inside and started talking to the engineers and the, and the people on the front lines, you began to see this incredible passion, this idealism, this drive, this almost suicidal, you know, refusal to face the reality of the difficulties they had technically that they had to overcome. Mm -hmm. And you started to think, wow, this, this is really interesting because you could see the potential of it. And then they would say things like, I want kids in Africa to have computers. And you think, huh? So they, they were dreamers and they really meant it and they knew they'd make money, but that was secondary. And, and I think just being in the room, you saw the potential. So that became interesting. And uh, then you started to see as they were building things and things were coming out, products were being released and how it was impacting society, even in a smaller scale. And then you started, I started to believe their grand claims of what was coming. You know, I, I uh, challenged Steve at one point on what he was going to do with this computer and, you know, what did he hope to accomplish mm -hmm. <laughs> just off the cuff? And he got really upset and he said he wanted some kid at Stanford to cure cancer in his dorm room because this would be such a powerful supercomputer that he was going to build at such an affordable price that students would be able to leverage it to do hard science in their dorm rooms. I mean, and, you know, it sounded preposterous at the time, but you could see in his eye he believed it was possible. <laughs> so, why did why do you think he gave you access, or did you ever did he ever tell you why? Well, part of it was I think that you know I went there and pitched him and said I'd like to document with complete access your process of innovation. I want to understand how that works. I had studied visual anthropology at one point with. Uh, the guy who invented it, John Collier, and his assistant. And I, I started to see these people as kind of a hidden tribe that were misunderstood. And um, they had their own culture they were developing with their own language. And um, so I think just talking to him about his process and his team was interesting. Mm -hmm. But I think the real reason was partly because he already had the idea. <laughs> I was pitching him at the right place at the right time. Okay. He knew he wanted to protect his legacy already. 
back then, and he had been studying Edison and how Edison controlled his his image. But he never controlled me. I mean, he gave me complete access, and he let me do whatever I want wanted. It may have just come down to the fact that I was introduced to him from people he trusted. Mm-hmm. And actually, the whole thing with Steve was trust. He had to trust you, or he, you know, there was no relationship. So I think he just made a decision that I was okay. You know, you, you came to the project and you yourself weren't a techie. You didn't know a lot about computers. You didn't know a lot about, you know, the big thing about finances and all those other things. So, you know, it, it, looking from the outside in, people would have looked, in, looked at you and go, well, why are you qualified to go out and photograph this? So when you look at it, what do you think were your advantages going in, despite the fact that you didn't have that, you know, that knowledge that I just referred to? that allowed you to be like the perfect person to, to do this? Well, I, I think that's all true. And I definitely regretted not paying attention in science and math class. Damn. <laughs> and I learned a lot pretty fast, but it was, it was hard slogging, having been focused totally on art and then photojournalism, um, not realizing the fundamental importance of math and science to everything we do, including, you know, art. Uh, But to answer your question, I think I was the perfect person because I was an outsider. And I think it takes sometimes someone to reflect back an honest interpretation from maybe a naive or or an innocent place, you know, like a child, they say the darndest things because they're just completely reflecting back what they see. Hmm. So I didn't feel it was a, a disqualification that I didn't know about technology. I was, I was a student of human behavior, and my strength was to look at them as human beings. I've talked to people in, in New York or in the art world about this project, and there's a real backlash and a universal, not universal, but a widespread kind of dislike or hatred, visceral hatred for uh, what Silicon Valley has come to stand for in terms of the fabulous wealth and success and the geek culture and um, some of the blind spots that they exhibit today based on their privileged position uh, of power, great power. So seeing them as human back then and getting below the surface of all the jargon and the tech speak and all the PR, you know, I think that was my strength because that was what I wanted to do. Mm-hmm. Who were the people that had this power? Who were they? What were their motivations? I mean, you go to New York, you talk to your editors and they're like, either they think they're the most boring people in the world or they're really focused on the uh, attributes of the product or the money. And I was interested in culture, hmm. you know, and that, that's always been my thing is like, why are we here? <laughs> Who are we? <laughs> what is the human drama about, the human behavior about? So, yeah, I was shooting famine in Ethiopia. I was shooting poverty. I was shooting different subcultures in the Bay Area and the gay community and so forth. And, and this was just another group of human beings on a quest. But they happen to be highly organized and focused. So it was just interesting to me. Yeah. You know, you, 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 as you said, you had documented famine. You had documented the, the, the early uh, early period of the AIDS crisis. You know, and, and other subject matter that sort of lead dramatically for really good photographs. But, you know, for, for this project, you're dealing with people largely who are working in an office, which is not the most exciting environment in which to photograph people typically. And, and you were trying to capture ideas. You were trying to capture passion. You were trying to capture a level of dedication that you probably had not been witness to before. So as a photographer, what were, what were the challenges in terms of being able to sort of capture that experience that you were feeling as a, as a, as a witness to it? It was hard. I mean, oh my God, it was like 
mind-numbingly boring for hours and hours and hours. And I started to think of myself like a shark, just keep moving, and I would just hang out in labs. I would walk through the hallways and walk and walk and walk up floors, different floors. I'd walk into meetings and sit there and just listen in the back of the room. And, you know, I was kind of studying and learning, and then you figure out who has certain power and what the motivations are, and then you start to figure it out like a news story. Oh, they're going to try to release a beta version of the operating system, so they're going to be doing a bug hunt for the next three nights, 24 hours a day. So you start to figure out the story, and then you show up at the right times where things might be happening. So it was it was a process like any other story of any other group of people, but on the surface, it's fluorescent lights, it's cubicles, mm-hmm. it's hideous. And that's why I chose, uh, when I talked to uh, Peter Howe, who took a big chance on this story for Life magazine, you know, I said, let's do it in black and white. You know, in 1985, black and white was like retro because everything had gone color since 1981 when USA Today came out. All the magazines were trying to switch to color. So to do it in black and white was easier, I thought, because it was just about faces and emotion and not bad color and bad lighting. And I, and I wasn't going to be dragging lights around. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it was technically hard. A lot of my friends thought I was crazy and that it was, you know, on the face of it, quite a boring assignment. And it was, but there was so much to be mined below the surface that you could see. So, yeah, I may have failed in many ways, but I, I felt that it was important just to create a record. That's That was the key. And when I mentioned the visual anthropology, that also helped me because in the moments where there wasn't anything happening, I began to notice the environment. So things like where they worked and how they decorated their, their workspace. And that reflected how the culture of Silicon Valley and the nature of work was changing. You know, when I started, a lot of it was nine to five. People wore suits and ties at Intel and HP or coats and ties, you know, uh, Beckman Instruments. All those old line tech companies were very military and formal and classic. And Steve represented this whole humanist generation of hippies coming in and merging with that space race generation. And they just blew up the corporate established culture as a way to foster creativity. And that did help them fuel breakthroughs because they could work when they were most creative, like in the middle of the night. They could just be there. They could sleep under their desk. They could wear, uh, you know, surfing clothes and go barefoot or whatever. And that was a big, big shift in corporate culture. And, you know, that radiated out from Silicon Valley back to the East Coast and all over the world. So, you know, it started out with casual Fridays, for example. Doesn't sound like much, but that was a big thing. You know, you could wear whatever you wanted on a casual Friday. You couldn't really have to be dressed casual. But, um, you know, from that you get changing hierarchies, flattening of hierarchies, changing, you know, teams began. Uh, you could sh- change your work hours. You could share shifts with different people. Um, it just really, really changed the whole nature of work based on their need to be creative in inventing stuff that hadn't been invented before. One of the things about having, you know, complete license to be able to document whatever you can is that's sort of the ideal that every photographer has. But I'm, I was wondering whether were there times that seemed particularly sensitive where you were hesitant about photographing it or did you or were you able to put such feelings aside and sort of make whatever photograph you needed to make? I think once with any story, any documentary photographer has to be able to gain the trust of everyone and be be ignored at a certain point. You're there. Like I don't, I didn't shoot all the time. I would just be there. I became embedded. And once you have that level of comfort, you know, when something does happen, you're fine to shoot. You're fine to shoot. But yeah, there were there were times 
particularly around Steve, where I didn't feel comfortable shooting if he was engaged in something intense, which was often. <laughs> and, uh, and I would try to stay out of his sight line. But yeah, I think I had, in the different companies that I documented, I had pretty much carte blanche. I mean, Steve, in fact, took me up in front of the whole company. You know, and engineers are very, in many cases, very protective. And who's this photographer guy? And he, he took me up in front of the whole company at an offsite and introduced me and said, you know, nice things about me and let this guy do what he does. He's working on this project. Let him do his thing. So, and the other thing I did to gain acceptance was I started to bring in 20 prints or so every month and give them to Steve and, and he framed them and hung them on the walls. And that created a sense of community as it turned out. People mm. were like, oh, got their 15 minutes. So that was a trick. <laughs> but it, was, <laughs> it was useful. And, you know, it's like, I think any story you do, there's certain things. But, you know, to young photographers looking for stories, looking for things to do, I think you have to look beyond the surface. You know, there's lots of things that might yield photos much more easily than this particular subject. But working this story as hard as I did has, has definitely had its rewards. It's definitely turned into something much more than I ever thought it would. How did being sort of a witness to people who were pushing the limits of what's possible, of, of really pushing themselves beyond what they thought they were capable of, how did that influence the way you looked at yourself and what you were capable of doing? Yeah, that's a good question. I think it changed me. I think it changed my life completely. I don't know if you think this is true or people realize it, but I think a lot of photojournalists are basically stunted and immature in many ways. You know, there's a lot of, when I was, when I got to the Washington Post as an intern, out of 21 photographers, 20 had been divorced and one was separated. So, mm -hmm. you know, you're on the road, you're shooting all this hard stuff. It's hard to have relationships. And consequently, part of you doesn't really grow. But being in that room with Steve and that team, everybody had to know who they were and what they were about. So I had an existential challenge to figure out who I was and what I was doing there. And that's why I said, once I figured out making a record of them was my purpose, I was, I was good to go. I had a justification for what I was doing, but I really had to think about it. So that meant everything from that point on in my life, I really had to think through more carefully what I was doing and what I was willing to give up to do it. And also seeing them work so hard and some people actually died. You know, one guy shot himself that I'd spent a year documenting. It, it was just really, really hard what they were doing. And the thing that got Steve back after 10 years of failure and struggle was that he never gave up. Mm -hmm. He never, ever gave up. He kept working on this, this operating system that ultimately Apple bought that got him back uh, to Apple, even though the next computer ultimately failed. It was so cool, and, and it paid off. But he was willing to go off that cliff and go bankrupt and, and spend $100 million of his own dollars. And so I think that's kind of inspiring, but it's also a lesson that, you know, anything worth doing is really, really hard, and it's going to be much harder than you even imagine when you start. So you have to think through what you're dedicating yourself to and, and just know that it's going to be much harder than you imagine, but you'll never succeed if you don't keep trying. So how did, it, how did it change the choices that you made in your, in your personal life? I, I kept thinking about what I was here for and what I should be doing. And then I had my wife, my second wife, and I had a son. And I started to realize the life I had been leading wasn't conducive to being a good father. So I tried to figure out all of the things that everybody eventually goes through is that how do you 
have a good relationship? How do you keep a marriage working? How do you be a good father and still work as hard as we do as photojournalists, as, as photographers? And that was a big, big thing for me because it, it, it led me to start looking for things I could do and stay home more often, which was kind of a pathway simultaneously to corporate and commercial work because I thought, you know, well, the only way I'm going to be able to provide a home and, and a house, it's not going to be photojournalism. Hmm. But that also led to another crisis because I didn't want to, you know, shoot things that I, that weren't, that I wasn't happy shooting. I began to really think through what was my true path and what was I about. And if it was about documenting the human experience and I needed to make more money to support my family and be home more and do corporate and commercial, how could I align those two things? So that became a huge deal. And it took several years of trial and error to figure out that I wasn't going to be for everybody. I could do commercial work on my own terms to a certain degree. I created what I call my fuck you portfolio. And, uh, <laughs> which my, which uh, my agent wasn't thrilled about. But, you know, it's like, here's the thing. I realized, okay, I'm not for everyone. I'm only for the smartest creative directors with the largest budgets who get what I bring and value what I have to say. What I have learned documenting the human condition is valuable for advertisers and corporate brands because I can tell their story in a way that resonates. It's because it's emotionally valid what I'm shooting. So if I had looked at that F, at that FU portfolio, what would I have been seeing in there that was different from what other commercial photographers were submitting to art buyers and art directors? At that moment in time, every portfolio I was aware of was quickly changeable so that the agents could send out, you know, pictures of throw in some babies if you were doing a baby campaign, you know, or cars if you're doing cars. Mm -hmm. And I made a decision to just find the strongest work that got to the core of who I was as a visual storyteller, as a photographer, what I was interested in. Little moments of interaction, just little things about being alive that I noticed, you know, beauty in the world, as well as an absurd sense of humor that I, I'm attracted to and, you know, the absurdity of life and, and, and some of the sadder things as well to try to balance some of the joy that I put in there. But I was trying to put in emotionally resonant images that I really, really loved, no matter what anyone else said. Mm -hmm. And of course, then I edited tightly. So it really was, I think, a pretty valid record of the kind of stuff I wanted to shoot. So instead of putting in there pictures of things that I thought would get me hired, I put in there pictures of things that I was interested in that I would hope somebody would agree was worth, you know, that would be, I would be right for that project because they wanted to use me for my eye. You know, things were changing that I had an art director tell me once around that time you know, about my portfolio, he said, you know, you're the first photographer and I've hired this guy and this guy and this, he mentioned all these famous people, famous photographers. And he goes, you're the first photographer I hired for his eye to shoot what you shoot. <laughs> 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 so, you know, the thinking then was that you were a skilled craftsperson, however famous you might've been, and you were going to be bent to the will of that marketing need. Mm -hmm. You're, you're, look, your look, your talent was going to be harnessed to the will of that versus what evolved. You know, I was just riding a wave at that time about this. And, and, uh, and now that's gone backwards because now it's all about triple bidding and it's hard to find the right projects that really allow you to do what you do. It's so they're less and less. Yeah. They're still out there. 
they're less and less. So anyway, I think I, I was able to, just to get back to the original point, is that I was inspired by these people and their dedication, and I realized I had to apply that to myself and figure out what I could do to change my life so that I could fulfill my potential, which was my dream was to do long-form stories you know, on stuff I cared about. And I thought it was my responsibility to finance those myself. So I thought, oh, I can use advertising to pay for this uh, documentary work. And that's what I did. And then I tried to define the advertising work in a way that was fun so that I wake up in the morning. I'm not defined. I'm not in a box. I'm not like, oh, he's an advertising type. Oh, he's a photojournalist. He's a, he's a documentarian. It was just like, oh, today I'm documenting my kid playing his guitar or today I'm doing I'm going to go to Dubai and document the culture for a month, and then Emirates Airlines will use 18 of those pictures to talk about their culture in a worldwide ad campaign to fly Emirates. You know, it, what difference was that from what I would do anyway that day? You know what I mean? So yeah. it was a unified theory of how I would shoot. The downside of that was that it became successful. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's the problem is that, you know, you see this in Silicon Valley, success can be as dangerous as failure. And uh, I ended up with a studio on the water in Sausalito with like 12, 13, and 1.15 employees with an overhead of like a million a year in payroll. And I mean, I was working my ass off just trying to keep that thing going. And so the dream kind of died for a while while I made a detour down the path of hell of success, you know, you know, and I burned out, I burned out on that. For sure. That moment of burning out is, 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 is an important one because some people will continue to push through it, even though they're burned out and other people will sort of recognize it as a, as a sign that something has to change. Tell me about that moment. Well, it was hard to recognize. I didn't know that I was burning out. I just became more and more unhappy and I just was getting tired. And I remember at one point, I don't know what year it was, 2000 or something, I just drove to the airport, got on a plane, and ended up renting a house on the North Shore of Kauai for a month and uh, didn't tell anybody I was going and actually have no memory of how I got there. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just told this by my wife because she found me there. She flew to Hawaii and found me there. We, we watched the World Cup. I remember whatever year it was, the World Cup was on. So we watched every game. So that was a real lesson because um, I always thought I was an infinite well of creativity and uh, energy. And I was always a really happy guy. So um, that was a big lesson that, no, you have to replenish the well. You have to take care of yourself. You have to do things. That led to another epiphany for me a few years later. It took me three or four years to figure this out. But what I had to learn was to say no at that point to um, – things that made me sick to my stomach or were made me unhappy. Learning the power of no was one of the hardest things I had to learn. And mm. learning that gave me back my happiness for a while because that was uh, such a relief to be able to say no. But it's a huge, huge deal because you're, I think many artists, many photographers are insecure and worry about, well, you know, when you're a freelancer, you know, <laughs> where's your next gig coming from? Because you know, it doesn't matter how successful you are. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fickle world out there, and there's always somebody hotter or newer or better. So you're always hustling and worried about that. But learning to say no is incredibly liberating in terms of figuring out who you are and what you should be doing with your life. Although there's going to be a price to that too. Can you give me an example about a moment that soon after that where you did say no and you were thinking, "Am I doing the right thing?" You know, but you, <laughs> but you stuck to it. 
<laughs> yeah. yeah, the real test came, I was in Paris, I flew to Paris with a friend of mine who was in the same kind of funk, and it was cold and rainy November, we were walking around the streets of Paris talking about, you know, art and the meaning of life, whatever, and I got back to my hotel room and my agent called from Chicago and had this, had this uh, project, and he told me what it was, and I immediately recognized this is not for me. This is not what I do. I just had this clear reaction. Instead of normally my reaction would be figuring out how I could make it work for me. But I had this visceral feeling of that's not me. That's not what I do. And I turned it down. And uh, he was yelling at me, what are you talking about? It's 200 grand. It's like six days. Da, da, da. I was like, nah, I, I got to pass on that. Thanks. Bye. And I hung up the phone. <laughs> I was laughing. I put my hands in the air. Yes, I just threw away 200 grand. <laughs> and I tell you what, it was like electrifying joy because I would have not enjoyed that project. And when you take projects that you're uncomfortable with, they don't get better. Usually. Yeah, they don't. They don't. Yeah. <laughs> they don't respect you either. You, you know, if you want to be respected and have power at all on one of these complicated shoots, you have to, you have to hold out for your vision as much as you can. It's harder and harder and harder. We have less and less leverage today at that particular moment in time. It was the perfect moment. And, um, they called back and, um, my agent called back and said, they're really upset. The agency's upset. They, they don't understand. They want you for this project. So the question is, how would you shoot it? <laughs> what do you want to do? And because um, they originally wanted me to do these portraits against this chocolate leather backdrop of these high level executives. And I was like, <laughs> it's mm. like executive or something, you know. So I said, no, what I would do is do the kind of day in the life, document their lives and hang out, be a fly on the wall, follow them around the world and try to get moments of these, these people's lives. So they called me back again, and they said, okay, they're changing the creative for you. You got it. You can shoot it however you want. <laughs> <laughs> so that was a weird wake up. I was like, oh, I had that kind of power? Really? To change this major brand's marketing idea? Really? So you just never know. And you could, if you follow my advice, you'll probably fail, but you'll never hit it out of the park either because you're not going to be able to do what you really want to do if you can't define your own terms. Yeah. Wow. And I, and I teach this, this is like merging art and commerce. And what I'm saying, it isn't, it isn't like binary. It's not like tomorrow you wake up and you're going to follow this. It's a process of recognizing what's really important to you, where you're going. And then guess what? You have to do what I learned in Silicon Valley, write a business plan, get funding, even SBA loan, a rich uncle, you have to create a foundation based on traditional business practices, best practices to support your creative vision. Get the purest creative vision, then create a solid business plan so that you're going to be cash flow is covered for three to six months while you launch your new marketing of this fragile butterfly vision of what you want to get paid to shoot. But it can be done. I'm here to tell you. So how did how did that experience all that and that, that newfound knowledge sort of influence what you decided to take on in terms of personal projects? Because you you know you just didn't want to do endless uh, personal projects just straight out of pocket. You had to think about feasibility financially and how you know you wanted to share the work and so on. So how did this experience sort of color and influence the things you chose to focus on personally? Well, first of all, I had a great mentor, Rick Smolin. And his partner, David Cohn, were both incredibly generous friends. 
they were doing these books called the Day in the Life books. And they would bring 100 photojournalists to a different country every year. And they funded those through corporate sponsorships. So I started to look towards that model. And I had become interested in uh, Mexican culture and, and the traditions and history and rituals around tequila. And tequila as a unifying element in this very, very disparate Mexican culture. It's, it's a really, really interesting you know, I thought I knew Mexico from going down there for 25 years, but it turns out very, very little about it. Anyway, I went through this process of learning about tequila. That became my project. I spent about four years uh, working on, on that, and that became a book that uh, Macy's uh, sponsored and helped fund, and that, that became my model. So, you know, from the moment I said no, and I, we actually moved back to New York, we sold everything in, in Marin County, and the studio in Sausalito and the House of Mill Valley. And, um, and I was able to start working on long-term projects in a more meaningful way. And I did that book in 2004. And then I did another book on AIDS orphans in Uganda after that. So I just was moving into projects that attracted me on some gut level that, that uh, you know, were very satisfying to do. I love that work. I got to say that some of, the, my, some of my favorite of yours work is from that, that, that body of work. I just I remember when I first saw those 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 images were just stunning. I I couldn't stop looking at them. Well, thank you, thank you. It's really great. That makes my day. <laughs> uh, going back to the fearless genius work, because you shot well over two hundred thousand images, and I know that at one point they were just in a box somewhere. Uh, when it came time for you to sort of revisit that that work, um, what, what what were some of the challenges that you faced in terms of culling through all of those pictures and figuring out what you're going to do with them? Yeah, I didn't have a master plan for that. Stanford Library heard about this material, which they wanted to have. They wanted to be the repository for the history of Silicon Valley. And that led to us, I mean, I had a fully working studio with a lot of people that I could then draw on. But there was one key person, another great mentor I've had is Karen Malarkey, who was the picture editor at Newsweek and Rolling Stone and many other publications. And she was willing to go through the material with me and try to make sense out of it and organize it into stories and what was important. So that was the key, was having a great picture editor kind of thrashing at this material. We then counted it all and organized it by story or by company or by whatever it was I was documenting. And uh, Stanford acquired that material and began to scan it. You know, then the work really began. Once the scans came back, we started to see, I mean, first of all, it was like Indiana Jones. We had boxes, 2,000 square feet of empty warehouse space filled with boxes that had to be opened, looked at what was in there, identify who was in the pictures. It was very hard. Mm. It took years and years, years and years and years. And we've only, out of 250,000 negatives of 15 years of Silicon Valley, we've only scanned 7,000 images to date. Oh, my God. Well, we're trying to raise money to do the rest. I mean, we've put millions into this, by the way. And now we're trying to raise money to finish it. You know, there's a lot more stories in there. There's a lot of interesting people. And I think what's happening now is you're seeing a, a time where young entrepreneurs, innovators can't get funding for really big ideas. It's really hard. They can do apps or games. And some of those might become big ideas, you know, like Uber did. But, but it's, you know, for the idealism that I was after back in the 80s that attracted me, it's not being supported either by government funding, which was, you know, what built Silicon Valley through the Defense Department and the National Institute of Science and so forth, 
and then that allowed infrastructure to be there for venture capitalists to come in and fund low-hanging fruit projects like Apple Computer, you know. So the the situation now, I think the stories that I'm telling from Fearless Genius, they bring to light a kind of uh, almost reckless idealism and, and, an, and an intense interest in creating technology that would improve human life. That's what they really were after. Yeah, it had to be cool, and they, but they wanted to do something significant, and they did. It was step change innovation. Now we're looking at a time that everything is an iteration. Everything we use today, every product, every technology from outer space to your kitchen pretty much was developed. The foundation of that was developed in the 80s or 90s or earlier, in the 70s. Or, so we're looking at a really interesting time of churn, of great iteration, and the, and the products are getting good, really good. But it takes 20, 30 years to make this stuff good, and that's what's happening right now. But there's a new wave coming of stunning, astonishing new technology that when it scales – it will be transformational again. But it hasn't scaled yet, and it might not scale here. We might not catch the next wave here in the U.S. We're not graduating enough engineers for starters, right. not by far. You know, And uh, China graduated 2 million, and we did like 200,000 roughly, of which I think 50,000 were computer scientists. So we just don't have the talent to populate all the startups in the first place. And now our immigration system is dead because of uh, what's happening politically and the misguided uh, leadership of our government in terms of it was settled. It was a clear story. Immigration built America. Hello, you know, and Silicon Valley, 50% of the unicorns, the billion dollar companies are foreign, you know, founders. They're foreign born. Uh, I think 50% of the CEOs or, or more of all the tech companies are, are immigrants. So we know that's important, but that's being stopped. So Silicon Valley is going to be choked for talent soon. Whereas in China and India, they're, they're not. They have tons of talent, and they're quickly learning how to build uh, innovative cultures. They're learning how to build the kind of culture that led Silicon Valley to be a powerhouse, which is that creativity. You know, when you look back at that, at that work, especially when you were going through it you know, for, for the books and for the exhibitions, what did you learn about yourself as a photographer when you had a chance to, really, to critically go back and look for the work? I think there's always something in all of the pictures, no matter what I'm shooting, that's, I, I, I think what I learned was that there's a through line of something in the back of my brain that keeps pulling me, and it tends to be maybe a, a question that I'm asking about my own place in the world, my own identity, and I think I'm just trying to answer that question by photographing these little moments of interaction of daily life, of uh, human behavior. I, I love watching people uh, interact. And there's only like six or seven things that human beings do, mm. <laughs> maybe eight or nine. I don't know. There's this repetitive behavior that everyone does. And you can predict now, you can watch when you really study people, you can predict what might happen next and what they're going to do just from studying body language and stuff. But I think for me, it's like the subconscious question of my own identity and who I am. I'm trying to answer that probably by continuing to take pictures and whether it's Silicon Valley or in Uganda or in the Amazon, it's all the same for me. It's like, you know, what do we have in common? What is separating us? What is differentiating us? You know, because we're all on this kind of journey together. And there's this excitement for me in finding connections between cultures and people. And that's exciting to me, you know, and it's affirmative, uh, life affirming in a way. Yeah. And I think these stories, like I was starting to say, these stories that I'm telling from the early days of Silicon Valley, what I hope is that young entrepreneurs see that and start to look around for meaning 
in what they're doing and try to go for bigger things like solving climate change or you know, try to figure out using their talents to, to create meaning in their life by working on projects that are as challenging as demanding as the stuff I photograph people do. You know, you talked about, you know, early on in your career, and a lot of photojournalists have this idea of wanting their work to make a difference. And then you kind of segued into documenting people who were trying to make a difference in, and who did in, in their work. And when you think about your work in your life now, what ways do you aspire to, to make a difference now? Well, I don't, I'm, I'm more humble about that. Ultimately, what the pictures will do, I think the telling the stories and sharing the stories has already impacted people's lives because they come up and tell me so at my talks. That's maybe the most important thing I'm doing now is just telling the stories and doing these talks and the exhibits from that era because this generation now, they have so much responsibility and hope riding on their talent and what they can do to correct this crazy world we live in. And they're not being supported by, you know, funding and a culture. Everything is short term now. Everything in our world is instant. You know, you want an early exit from your investment. You know, Wall Street wants everything quarterly. Sustainability is lacking. So if I could have any impact, I think if I could have any meaningful, you know, legacy of my own, it's just, I think, sharing what I saw and sharing what I learned and trying to inspire this next generation. And that's the, the opening we're having tonight at the Leica Gallery. It's um, the, the beginning of this work that I'm doing, documenting who's coming next. And I ask, you know, who will be the next Steve Jobs and where will she come from? And that's what, that's what I'm trying to do with the project now is leverage the history to look towards the future and how we're going to build a, a better future. And I don't think there's anything more clearly powerful on the planet than the people that can write the code that builds the technology that affects every aspect of our lives. Yeah. Well, my last question that I ask each guest is I ask them to recommend another photographer for listeners to discover and explore on their own. And it can be anyone, someone you've long admired or someone you've recently discovered. So who would that one photographer be and why? Well, there's so many, but I would recommend Ben Lowy and his partner, yeah, yeah. Marty. I love what they're doing. And I think he's been on a journey since at least 10 years of war photography to, oh, I've got kids. And Marvie, as a, as a photojournalist, also becoming a mother. And they're on this journey together to figure out how to make a living and do meaningful work with children that they don't want <laughs> to screw up. You know, we're always going to screw up our kids. That's a given. They're always going to be there. <laughs> but you can try. Anyway, I think that's one person. There's so many others, and it's hard to do it on the spot. But that's the first person that came to mind for people. Well, thank you so much for that. And thank you for your, for your time and for your work. It's, it's really uh, been a pleasure to talk with you. My pleasure, Brian. Next, you have a great show. And thank you for having me on. I'm thrilled. Thanks again for joining us and to Doug for sharing his story. To find out more about Doug and his work, visit Minway.com or order his book, Fearless Genius. You'll find a link to order in our show notes. And if you're in the LA area, please consider joining me for a two-day street photography workshop beginning on September 16th. It's going to be an intensive course that will help you get past any obstacles or fear that may stand in the way of you practicing great street photography. To find out more and to register for the remaining spots, visit lacphoto.org or click on the link in the show notes. 
and thank you for your continued support of The Candid Frame. If you haven't already, please take the time today to write a review in the iTunes Store. Your ratings and comments help people to discover the great conversations that we offer here at TCF. You can also support the show by making a monthly contribution through Patreon. Visit patreon.com forward slash The Candid Frame, or you'll find a link in the show notes and The Candid Frame website. Or if you just want to make a one-time contribution to the show, you can do so via PayPal by clicking on our Donate button on the Candid Frame website or show notes. Thanks to Julian E. DeHaan for their recent contribution. It's really helpful. Thank you. And Patreon supporters, please note that we'll be conducting the first live hangout on Tuesday, September 12th at 5 p.m. We'll be sending out more details through our Patreon blog. To access our complete archive of interviews, download the free Candid Frame app, available for Apple iOS, Android, and Windows. It's the fastest and most convenient way to hear and save any of the great interviews we present here at TCF. Links for each can be found in the show notes and the website. The Candid Frame's audio engineer is Martin Taylor. You can find at the other martintaylor.com. The show's senior producer is Cynthia Parker, and our music is from Kevin McLeod, whose royalty-free music can be found at Incompetech. And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at simply at IbarianX. And this is IbarianX, and this is The Candid Frame.